John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, we read, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, this is a very special thing that Jesus said, and we remind ourselves from the Gospel of John that Jesus is in Jerusalem, right here at verse 37. He's speaking on the Temple Mount. There's thousands of people around him. Even though Jesus is a wanted man, the officials from the religious leaders, they want to arrest him and they want to silence him. Even though he's a wanted man with incredible boldness, he goes out to the most public place in Jerusalem and he speaks in the midst of thousands of people and he does it during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says that he does it on the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, friends, there's something very interesting there, and I need to explain this to set up what Jesus said. Understand this, part of the ceremonies surrounding the Feast of Tabernacles was something called the drawing of water and the pouring out of water. What the priests would do is they would take a golden pitcher and they would go down to the pool of Siloam and draw out water and bring it up to the temple and go up to the very altar of the temple and pour out the water mixed with a little bit of wine to symbolize joy. And they did it to rejoice in God. They did it to remember that God provided water for Israel in the wilderness. They did it as a prayer for coming rain in the future year. And they did it as a way to recognize that God said that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of water as a part of the new covenant to come. Now what's interesting about this is they did this ceremony of the drawing of the water and the pouring out of the water. They did it for the first seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles lasted eighth day. On the eighth day, they did not pour out the water. They just prayed for the outpouring that the water symbolized. So please notice something. Our text tells us in verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, continue on now, verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. On the one day when they didn't pour out the water, but just thought about its metaphorical significance, Jesus says, I am the water that you have been looking for. I am the one that needs to be the one that satisfies your need, those deepest longings of your soul, those longings of your soul that are like thirst. Everybody knows what it's like to be thirsty, don't you? When you're thirsty, it's hard to think about anything else, isn't it? You just have to get that thirst satisfied. And when you do, through the simple act of drinking, you take that water within yourself, your thirst is at least temporarily quenched. Jesus said, that sense of longing and the need for soul satisfaction, I am the one who can fill it. And friends, he had a great urgency to get this message out to the people. Notice it, what it says. It says in verse 37 that he stood and cried out. Friends, this is a very important statement of Jesus. It was important because of where he stood when he said it. Where did he stand? In the very temple courts. He was there proclaiming it to thousands of people. 
It was also important because of when he said it. Jesus said it when? On the last day of the feast. You know what I find fascinating about this? It's something I never understood about the passage until this week when I studied it. The crucifixion of Jesus at this point chronologically was about six months away and would happen at Passover time. This last day of the Feast of Tabernacles was the last feast or festival day of Israel before the Passover where Jesus would be crucified. It was as if this, this was his last chance to speak to the festival crowd that would gather together in Israel. And because it was his last chance, he spoke with special urgency, with a special heart that said, I've got to reach these people. I've got to draw as many as I can, (coughs) excuse me, towards faith in me so that they can trust and they can believe at this critical moment. But friends, it was also important because of how Jesus said it. Did you notice what verse 37 said? Did he whisper this? No, he cried out and he said this. You know, normally Jesus didn't shout when he taught. How do I know this? Isaiah chapter 42, verse two says this prophetically of the Messiah. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Normally, the Messiah didn't cry out. Normally, he taught in a very tempered way, just in a very conversational way to the people. Oh, full of authority and passion, but in a conversational way. Right now, Jesus didn't operate business as usual. It was the last day, the last time to reach these people before he would come back to Jerusalem in his crucifixion. It was the time to reach them and to speak to them. So he cried out. He spoke with boldness. And what did he say? Verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, I want you to notice something about that invitation. On the one hand, that is an invitation that is very broad. Who does he make it to? Anyone. What does it mean in the original language? Anyone. In other words, he didn't say, just the spiritual people, you come to me and satisfy your thirst. He didn't say, just the smart people come to me and satisfy your service. He didn't qualify it by any language. He didn't qualify it by any nationality, by any race, by any class, by any political party. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, you come to me. So it was a very broad invitation. But on the other hand, it was a very narrow invitation in this sense. He said, if anyone thirsts, Come to me. Friends, isn't it true that there are many thirsty souls in our day and age that have no sense of their spiritual thirst? It's almost as if they're past feeling. They desperately need Jesus. They desperately need the soul satisfaction that only he can bring, but they are unable to feel the thirst for it. Friends, People like that need our prayers. And if that's you, if you would honestly say this morning, my rational mind tells me I need Jesus, but I have no sense that I need him. Would you just pray to God and say, well, God, would you give me a sense that I need you? And he'll do that. The the, the Holy Spirit is faithful to do that work in the midst of his people. So it's broad in the sense he says, if anyone, but it's narrow in the sense that he says, if anyone thirsts, and then he says, what's the requirement? He who believes in me. You see, Jesus was explaining what he meant by drink. Jesus was not offering 
a literal cup of water for people to come and literally drink and satisfy their thirst. He's using pictures. He's using metaphors. But the metaphors are very plain. He is likening faith to drinking. That's how it works, isn't it? I mean, I've had this bottle of water since first service. And I trust that nobody has doctored it, that nobody has put anything ill in it. And it just takes just a little bit of faith. I'm not saying it takes great faith, but it takes a little bit of faith for me to raise this to my lips and to drink. Well, it's the same thing. It's not something that somebody can do for me. Nobody can drink this bottle of water for me. I must do it myself. But I must do it with a sense of faith and simply say, I can drink this and I will drink it. It's the same way with believing in Jesus. Friends, anybody can do it. You can believe in Jesus. Even if you're not super spiritual, you can believe in Jesus. You can put your trust in him for both now and eternity and have that satisfaction of knowing that he fills your life and he will move in it. Now, look at the payoff for this. Verse 38, he says this. If you do this, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. For the one who does put their faith in Jesus... Not just simply believing he exists, but they trust in him. They rely upon him. They cling to him. They have a relationship of loving trust upon Jesus Christ. For that one, Jesus offered a perpetual river of living water out of his innermost being. It's as if he said this, put your loving trust in me, enthrone me in your heart, and life and abundance will flow out. Friends, it's true. Wherever water flows, life goes. We know that here in California, don't we? Don't water your garden. Don't water your lawn. And what will happen? It'll shrivel up and die. You water it and it will live. Well, it's the same way with us spiritually. We need Jesus in our life just as much as a thirsty land depends upon water. And Jesus simply says this. He says, trust in me, enthrone me in your heart, and life and abundance will flow out. I want you to notice something. Look at those words of verse 38. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus did not just speak of something that comes into a person. We believe that spiritual life, spiritual power comes into a person when they put their faith in Jesus, but that something also goes out of the person. Friends, this is God's great work. This is how you can know God is genuinely doing a work in your life. Not just when you have received something from Jesus, but when that which you have received also becomes an outflow of your life to touch other people. I don't know who it would touch. Maybe your family. Maybe you do a sacred service of loving God and walking with him among your family. Maybe it's at the place where you work. Maybe it's here in the church. I I, I see people here. You were serving our children in first service. God bless you. I pray that when you served our children during the first service, that was like a river of living water going out of you, touching their lives. But you see, here's the point. What Jesus talked about was not something just flowing into us, but something flowing out of us. And this is what God wants us to have and to experience. Matter of fact, look at how Jesus phrases this. No, excuse me. This is not Jesus. This is the gospel writer, John, making a comment upon what Jesus said in verse 39. He says this. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, what he's saying is simply this. 
the river of living water coming out of a person, Jesus says, that is the work of the spirit of God within the individual. And that could not happen until Jesus was glorified. Matter of fact, what he means by glorified is crucified, actually. We'll talk more about that later. And then the Holy Spirit would be given. Given unto God's people as part of the new covenant. Friends, this outflowing life and abundance comes in and through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. You know what this speaks of? This speaks of an experience of the Spirit of God. Now right there, when I talk about an experience of the Spirit of God, there are some people who just got a little bit nervous. If we had you all wired up with a pulse monitor and all that, your heart rate just elevated when I said, a little bit of stress in there when I talk about an experience of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to get this right in your mind. God wants you to have an experience of him. Your Christian life is not lived just merely in the gray matter between your ears. God wants you to have an experience of the life of the Spirit. And I believe he has it for all of his children. Jesus spoke about this belonging to everyone who believes in him. It's not only the super spiritual that have this. It's not only the a little bit nutty people that have this. It's something that God intends for all of his people. Now, when I say that, I want to explain it very carefully. One of the great dangers when we talk about the experience of the Spirit is this tendency that we have to say that your experience of the Spirit must be like my experience of the Spirit. Friends, we are all individuals and we are all wired very differently. I don't know what your experience of the Spirit will feel like, what it'll be like for you in your life. I just know that God wants you to have it. And I'm not going to try to dictate your experience of the Spirit that it should be just like mine. But I'll tell you this. If when I talk about this passage and explain what it means to have a river of living water flowing out of you, if you read that and you go, that is so bizarre, I have no idea what that's talking about, I just want you to do this. I want you to take it to God in prayer. Would you just take it to God? I don't even mind if you go to God in prayer and open up your Bible before him and do something like this. God, you say in your word that this is the experience or the property of everybody who believes. And I don't really know what that means. Would you please show me? In the way that you intend for my life personally, would you grant unto me this experience of the Holy Spirit? Friends, this is something that God wants to give for us. And might I say, not only wants to give to us, that we need. We need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need his filling and perpetual life and energy in our life. We were not meant to live a merely cerebral, a merely mental Christian life, but one that is filled with the life and the activity and the flow and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what God wants to work in our lives. Now, after such a dramatic statement of Jesus, there on this most dramatic last day of this feast, the last feast before he would be crucified, you can see what kind of a splash it made by looking at verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that when the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was, 
So there was a division among the people because of him. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus makes this great invitation. Come to me and have your spiritual thirst satisfied. And because of that, there was a division among the people regarding that. Some people said, oh, he's the prophet. Other people said, no, he's the Christ, the Messiah. When when some people said he's the Christ, the Messiah, did you see the reaction there? I found this fascinating. Some people say, well, he can't be the Christ. He can't be the Messiah. Why? Because he comes from Galilee and we all know that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. Isn't that fascinating? What didn't they know? They didn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Oh, sure, maybe he grew up in Galilee, Nazareth to be specific. But friends, he was born in Bethlehem. He did fulfill all the scriptures, even though they were ignorant of it. Now, friends, do you think it would be right for one of those people back then to reject Jesus because they said, oh, he comes from Galilee? It wouldn't have been right. But friends, I see a very similar thing today in the thinking and in the lives of many people. Do you know how many people refuse to make a decision for Jesus Christ because of relatively silly questions? I see it. Oh, listen, I'd give my life to Jesus Christ for sure. But can you tell me, where did Cain get his wife from? Now, What if you were to answer that question, where did Cain get his wife from? What would happen invariably? Another question would come up. And then they'd search the internet, challenging Bible questions. And they'd come up with another question, and another question, and another question. Friends, there comes a time where you have to say, I know enough to surrender my life to Jesus Christ, to put my faith in him. Now, I'm not trying to say that your questions are stupid or that Jesus doesn't want to answer them. I'm just saying there comes a point where those answers have to be found once you've given your life to Jesus. Once you surrender your life to him. And then those questions can be asked along the way. But nevertheless, verse 43 tells us, so there was a division among the people because of him. Friends, there's no doubt about it. During the earthly work of Jesus, he divided people. People want to think of Jesus as his great unifier. He brings the whole world together. It's a beautiful thing. And friends, there's a sense in which that's true in the Messiah's ultimate work. But when he came to this earth, and even as it is today in the world, the Messiah divides people. Are you for me or are you against me? Are you with me or will you work against me? People could not truly be of two opinions about Jesus. Some would be for him. Others would be against him. And friends, this division didn't happen because Jesus spoke foolishly. This division didn't happen because Jesus was speaking on obscure theological subjects. You know what his main theological subject was? Himself. He pointed people to who he was. He was the one from heaven, the Messiah of God, God the Son and the Son of God. And that's how he presented himself to people. And because of that clear presentation, some people said, yes, we agree. Other people said, no, we do not. Now with all this um, commotion upon the Temple Mount, Jesus crying out, inviting people to come to him. The the varied reaction amongst the people. Look what happens in verse 44. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. 
Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why have you not brought them, brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Isn't it amazing? It says right there in verse 44, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Do you see what happened? Can you picture that in your mind? There are essentially police, officers of the temple court. These are the police from the religious authorities. They send their own little police, their own little SWAT team to go get Jesus. And there they are, they're armed. They've got their swords. Maybe they even had shields. I don't know, they might've had helmets even. They go and they say, our job is to arrest this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who's making this great commotion upon the Temple Mount. We're going to arrest him and we're going to shut him up. And they go, but, but, what's the harm in us listening a little bit to him before we do that? So they go and begin to listen. And what do they hear? They hear Jesus talking about if anyone thirsts, come to me. They hear Jesus talking about how living water will flow out of the earth. They hear Jesus speak in his whole great message there on the Temple Mount at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they say, we can't arrest this guy. No one ever spoke like this man does. His words are so true. They have such an authority. They have such a love. They have such a wonder about them. This man speaks the truth of God. He's different than any other person. We've heard a lot of blowhard teachers in our day. This man isn't like them. And so we're not going to arrest him. Now, friends, can you just picture that scene for a moment? Here are the officers. They have the swords. What does Jesus have? Nothing. What, do you think he had ninja stars up his robe or something? Jesus had nothing. No, he had nothing except the power of God's spirit. And this shows us something. That true spiritual power will never be overcome by the power of the sword. Those officers had swords. Jesus, in his teaching, he had no earthly weapon but he was mighty in God. And it was those officers who walked away defeated, unable to carry out their plan. So much so that that when they went back, they had to make an explanation to the chief priest. But friends, I want you to understand this great principle. And the principle is simply this, that the spiritual power of Jesus was far greater than their sword power. Spiritual power is greater than sword power. Now, ultimately... The sword power and the secular power has no authority over Jesus in his church. This is my brought to my mind in the last couple weeks. You've seen it on the news, haven't you? You've seen um, those terrible pictures of 21 Egyptian Christians on their knees before men who were gonna horribly behead them. You saw those pictures, didn't you? And those men who were going to behead them did it in the name of Islam. They did it in the name of Allah. 
Whatever you want to thought about whether they were right or wrong in their understanding of Islam, they no doubt believed that they were doing it in the name of Islam and they beheaded those 21 Egyptian Christians and they did it because those men were believers. Now, I almost feel wrong in emphasizing those 21, even though they were martyrs for the faith. Because friends, I don't want anybody to think that the death toll stops at 21. There have been thousands of believers murdered, mostly by militant Islam in our own day and age. Thousands upon thousands. But let me tell you something, and I'll give it to you straight here. Those bloodthirsty enemies of Jesus and his people, they will be destroyed. They will, absolutely so. Now look, before you clap, before you clap, hear me out, because you may not be clapping after I say this. You know the way I pray they're destroyed? I pray they're destroyed through conversion and transformation. I pray that God would raise up many a Saul of Tarsus, many a people who were fierce persecutors of Jesus and his people. And through a miracle of God, these people are converted and come to light and life in Jesus Christ. And those who once persecuted the church now become marvelous preachers of the gospel. That's how I pray that they are destroyed. But I will tell you this. If they are not transformed by the love and the power of Jesus then they will be judged by the righteous Jesus. And I don't know how that judgment will come. Maybe it'll come from a government that's courageous enough to do it. Maybe it'll come through some other way that we can't even recognize. Maybe it'll be reserved for the life to come. But I guarantee you this, they will stand with the long list of arrogant and violent men and empires who sought to destroy Jesus and his church, and they will not stand against it. Just, just do your tour through history. You look at the men and the empires that have risen up against Jesus and his people, and they're gone. They do not last. You see, in some way, according to God's wisdom and God's timing, they will be crushed. And in the end, even if it happens in hell itself, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm assured of that. Why? Because again, back to our principle, spiritual power is mightier than sword power. And when I say spiritual power, I mean the true spiritual power of Jesus. Now imagine my surprise when I shared this first service and somebody came up to me afterwards and they say, did you hear such and such um, news show on such and such cable program? And they say, because that guy called for pastors all over the country to say something about this. And I said, I didn't hear anything about that, either on the internet or the news show or anything. And I said, and it's probably a good thing I didn't. Because if I would have heard something about it, me and my instinctively rebellious nature, I would have said, well, I'm not saying anything about that. Because I'm not going to say something or not say something because some guy on television tells me to say it or not say it. But friends, the truth of God abides. Do you get the principle? They came to arrest Jesus and had every intention of doing so, but they were utterly unable to because the spiritual power of Jesus was far greater than their sword power. Matter of fact, look at what they said in verse 46. No man ever spoke like this man. 
They had heard a lot of rabbis teach, but they never heard anybody speak like Jesus. They were so impressed by the message of Jesus and the man Jesus was that they found it impossible to carry out their work of arresting and silencing him. Now, look at the reaction of the religious leaders when these guys came back empty-handed. Verse 47, they said, are you also deceived? Verse 48, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You know, those religious leaders did not even ask the officers, hey, what did he say that impressed you so much? Instead, they despised them because they looked down upon the faith of the common man. Did you see what they said there in verse 49? Look at it again. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They were spiritual snobs. They were so convinced of their own superiority over other people that they didn't care for the common man. And generally speaking, the religious leaders in the time of Jesus despised the common people. They even had a phrase from, they called them the people of the land and they despised them. They thought nothing of them because they didn't memorize and observe the law the way that the strict Pharisees and other religious leaders did. Now there was one man among those religious leaders who was a secret believer in Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. Take a look at here in verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Nicodemus tried to reason with the religious leaders. Hey, maybe we're being a little too hasty. Maybe we're making a judgment before we should. He made a very small stand for Jesus Christ. I want to emphasize the small. How about if Nicodemus would have said, I'm a believer in Jesus. I had a personal interview with him recorded in John chapter 3. Well, John 3 wasn't recorded yet, but you know what I mean. I had a personal interview with him. I believe he's the Messiah. My heart is turned towards him. Nicodemus didn't say that. He goes, well, guys, aren't we being a little hasty in our judgment? Nicodemus made a small stand for Jesus, but they despised him even in the small stand for Jesus that he made. What did they say? Look at what they said. Verse 52, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. You see, to these religious leaders who were from Jerusalem and not Galilee, all the people of Galilee were shallow, common people who didn't understand or obey the law. They looked down on the common people. Friends, if your faith makes you look down on the common people, there's something wrong with your faith. It's not scripture, but I think it's wisdom Something Abraham Lincoln said, or at least I heard Abraham Lincoln said it. I didn't hear it personally, but I read in a book that he said (laughs) Abraham Lincoln said something along these lines. God must love the common people because he made so many of them. (laughs) And he does. These religious leaders despise the common people. And then they even said something bold to Nicodemus. They said in verse 52, search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. They were so determined in their looking down upon the people of Galilee that they said no prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee. And they said this in response to a small stand that Nicodemus made for Christ. 
I find a couple fascinating things about this. First of all, they were wrong. Prophets had come out of Galilee. Jonah came from Galilee. Nahum came from Galilee. Some people think that Elijah, the prophet, came from Galilee. And there's several others as well. Number one, they were wrong. Number two, they jumped all over Nicodemus for making a small stand for Jesus Christ. Friends, you know what I found? I found you're going to be equally criticized whether you make a small stand for Jesus or a great big stand for Jesus. You may as well make a great big stand for Jesus. And Nicodemus did. Later, after Jesus' death, Nicodemus was one of the two men, he and Joseph of Arimathea, who took the dead body of Jesus down from the cross and gave it a loving burial, associating themselves with the Son of God who was disgraced on the cross and aligning themselves with him. You know what I find fascinating about that? He made his big stand for Jesus after Jesus died on the cross, after the debt of sin was actually paid for. I think that God wants us to be able to make a big stand for Jesus. But friends, it's only gonna happen in light of what Jesus did on the cross and especially his sending forth of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Would you allow me just to end by bringing it right back to the beginning? Jesus said, anyone who believes on me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's what we need in our life to enable us to make a big stand for Jesus. But it only happens in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we come to Jesus. We put our trust in him. We put our trust in what he did on the cross. But then we come to him and we say, fill us with your Holy Spirit. I need that flow into my life and out of my life to touch a needy world. Do you need that? I know that I certainly do then let's pray for it together right now. Father in heaven, we simply pray for this, Lord. We read the text and we're struck all over again at how we need to believe it. And I pray, God, that for hearts and souls right now that are crying out for something more, that you give them a thirst for the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit of God in their life. We need this, Father. We believe in Jesus. We believe him in our heart. We believe in him in our mind. But Lord, we need this work, this experience of the Holy Spirit to be real in our life. So Father, I want to pray especially for those who have never had that or for those who have, but it seems so distant from them, they feel like it needs to be done all over again. Would you give them, please, Lord, a genuine thirst for the presence and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit? Do it in our midst, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.